welcome to Tea and Strumpets, a Regency Romance Review. I'm Zoe. And I'm Kelsey. So, Kelsey, this is episode three. Should we discuss how we've totally made it now? <laughs> oh, we've totally made it. I mean, the crowds are going wild every time I leave the house. I know. I feel pretty famous. And I just want to say uh, to all of our fans out there that, all right, Goldilocks, this time we're going to get the audio just right. <laughs> We've practiced a little bit. We're watching our monitor now, so we're good. Yeah, you know, it takes a little bit of practice, a little bit of uh, zhuzhing, shall we say, as we go. But uh, we've got things a little bit better, and it's only going to get better from here. Uh, So before we jump into the book that we read this week, I have a question for you, Kelsey. What would you say is your favorite, like, modern 2000s plus rom-com movie? Well, I think I have two. So my first go-to is 10 Things I Hate About You. Classic. Because young Heath Ledger and young Joseph Gordon-Levitt <gasps> are just things of beauty. So true. <laughs> Such a good choice. It's uh, definitely one of the ones that I go to. Like if I'm feeling a little sad, a little blue, I'm like, let's just watch 10 Things I Hate About You. But I also, when I think of romantic comedy, have another one, which is Sweet Home Alabama with Reese Witherspoon. All right. I can't remember if I've seen that one. And I'm glad that you brought in a second one because if you hadn't, then our hordes of listeners would have been messaging us to say that actually 10 Things I Hate About You is from 1999. So I know. Well, it's like, it's right on the cusp. Totally. I mean, like, I know it's 99, but it's just such a good movie. Like, it is. When I think rom com, like, that's my favorite one. But I will say that. Sweet Home Alabama is another one I absolutely adore. I will watch that all the time. I love that movie. I'll have to give it a watch. I can't remember if I've watched it, but I think my favorites come down to two as well. So um, they would be, first off, it would be She's the Man with Amanda Vines. I oh, that's a good one. I definitely rewatched that, that recently. I was like, I love this movie. It's so great. Plus, you get to see each Channing Tatum. (laughs) Channing Tatum. I always want to say he's Tatum Channing. (laughs) Or like Channing. Yeah, I always mix that up. (laughs) Um, Yeah, no, I like that one. It's funny. It's witty. You know, it's uh, based on a Shakespeare play, which is also a 10 Things I Hate About You thing. It's a She's All That thing. It was that whole genre Mm -hmm. was taking Shakespeare and turning it into teen rom-coms. Which are all fabulous, by the way. Any Shakespearean team rom-com I watch is fantastic. Yeah, they, I think most of them are fairly, quote-unquote, classic for the genre. I think there's one or two that kind of hit the lists of of being uh, really terrible. But there's always outliers, right? Well, you have to go with the comedies. I mean, if they're trying to do a rom-com based off a different one, it's not, it's not going to work not so gonna well. Be, it has to be the Shakespearean comedy. Yeah, not going to be a comedy so much. So my second one would be maybe a little bit lesser known, but it's with Drew Barrymore and Hugh Grant. It's called Music and Lyrics. And oh, I I think I saw that once, but it didn't really strike that chord with me. But then again, I haven't rewatched it recently. Yeah, it's just, it's great there. He is a washed up 80s pop star and she is just his plant like housekeeper person she's actually filling in for his normal person and he's trying to write lyrics for a pop star or a music and you know song for the pop star and he can write songs but not lyrics and uh, a you know <laughs> relationship ensues anyhow it's a very cute right. movie including songs it's I'm, I'm definitely a fan maybe a bit of a sleeper but i highly recommend all right i'll give it another look-see <laughs> all right zoe so today we're going to talk about pennyworld green 
book number three. And the title of this book is Since the Surrender by Julianne Long. And our main characters are Chase Eversey and Rosalind March. And Zoe, can uh, you give us a little tidbit about this book or just about, I like our little facts that you're throwing out every week. Yeah, of course. Um, So normally I give a little bit about the author, but like I alluded to last week with so many books uh, in this series, we would learn a lot about Julianne Long. So this week I'm taking it on a little bit of a different route. The author in her bio calls herself a history freak. And I have mentioned my opinions on the fact that there's not a lot of historical accuracy in these books. And you know what? Turns out I might have been wrong. (laughs) I, (laughs) yeah. So it's interesting because I feel like the author doesn't put too much emphasis on on worrying about the historical details. But I think that there are more in there than I realized. You know, I kind of started getting nitpicky about, well, they weren't going to observe the mourning period uh, if Colin died and then uh, Marcus and Louisa got married a few days ago before that. But um, her books do have, you know, some historical facts and figures that root it into a certain period of time. And that period of time is actually uh, the Regency period. There you go. Good thing about this podcast then. (laughs) (laughs) I I know, right? We got, we got the first one right. But yeah, no. So um, it's funny because, like I said, I've read so many of these books, but I have not actually really taken the time to learn anything about the Regency period. And uh, because I was looking into something for this podcast, I finally looked up who Prinny was. And (laughs) I know probably most people aren't like me and haven't just dived into many, many books without knowing a little bit more, absorbing a little bit more than me. But uh, Prinny was uh, George IV uh, of England. He was the king. And something that I really think you're going to enjoy is this little tidbit that I learned. So when we were talking about why we loved the Regency period so much compared to other uh, time periods to read about, uh, we both mentioned that one of the things that bothers us is when they get way too absorbed in these wigs of the period, which is before the Regency period, right? Everybody wore wigs. Yes, that was around the time of the Revolution, which was at the end of the 1700s versus the Regency, I think of as being firmly in the 1800s, time of the Napoleonic Wars. Yeah, and so Prinny is the reason that everybody stopped wearing wigs. Oh, thank God for that. Yeah. His political opponents put a tax on wig powder, and he abandoned wearing a wig in favor of natural hair, and he set the tone for everybody else to not wear wigs anymore. So we have Oh him. my <laughs> gosh. That's the coolest thing I've ever heard. Oh, actually, I would say that's one of the most ridiculous things I've ever heard. I know, but I found that- Taxing wig powder? Yeah. Really? So I found <laughs> that um, such a- great tidbit and a a cool thing to know that he was the reason that that went out of fashion. So there you go. I'm sure that there are more nuances than that, but he is credited really with um, changing that style. That's cool. I will say I have a hard time when I read these books, like thinking of people with wigs. And then I was reading a different series recently and they were wearing wigs. And so they were taking that into account with all the like 
attire descriptions. And I just like would listen to it, understand it, and then immediately like in my imagination throw the wig off. Yeah, I, I think I bet we're talking about the same book because we both read a recent new release. And um, I there were so many wigs in this book. And I got really frustrated with it because I love this series. And for whatever reason, there were just so many wig descriptions. They have been harping on the wigs in that series since the beginning. Okay, well, like, I okay, really, not this series, but yeah, that series. <laughs> I really picked up on it uh, this time. And for example, the heroine was playing billiards at like two in the morning after a costume ball. And she had been described as wearing like a two foot wig at the beginning of the ball. And it's still two in the morning and she's playing billiards wearing this wig. And I just couldn't stop I thinking. I never even considered that she was still wearing a wig. I, like I said, I knew she was wearing a wig and then I threw it off. I couldn't stop thinking about how uncomfortable that was. I See, I wish I could be like you because I am so much more like, oh my God, I cannot. I cannot with this wig anymore. And it definitely detracts from the story from me. And I try. I try to take that wig and like you say, just throw it off. But they kept coming back and kind of beating me with the wigs in that one, although it was a great book still. Uh, I imagine we'll get around to reviewing that because like we said, we both love that series. But we should probably get back to our book from today. I think we shall. So before we get into the like deep synopsis of this book, I just want to try to give a one to two sentence synopsis because let me tell you, if you thought Colin's plot was convoluted and hard to follow, strap in folks because we got another one. (laughs) (laughs) Yes, this one does take you on a twisty, twirly roller coaster ride. Yeah, so to to give you some premise of where we're going, we have Chase Eversey and Rosalind March. We, as the reader, find out pretty early that they knew each other before, and he agrees to help her find someone who's missing, and that is the book and the story of them falling in love. So, Kelsey, you ready to take it away? I'm ready. Let's strap in, y'all. Okay, so... Chase is an Eversea and was recently banished from... Banished! Banished. He says banished with an exclamation point. Um, He wasn't actually banished. They were just like sent him on a mission, but he saw it as banishment because he wasn't a good time anymore. And so anyway, he was sent to London to find the new vicar, who happens to be a cousin. Uh, This is fun. We like the vicar. He'll come into play. Not really in this book, but later on. Yeah, I think he's got the seventh book, and his name is Adam, uh, but that's really inconsequential. (laughs) Yeah. um, So anyway, and while he's on his way to see the vicar, he receives a message from this dirty little urchin kid who says, the lady told me to give this to you. So he reads the note, and it's basically just saying, meet me at this place in this room. Yeah, and it's in a woman's hand, and that's, you know, and obviously the urchin said it's from a woman, so that's really all he has to go on. And up until this point, we've had a couple descriptions of our character so far as uh, we're being introduced to him. And one of the lines that I picked out was, he rationed smiles these days as though the war was still on. But that's just one. And I I do like that sentence, but there are lots of them that are uh, really made me feel like, okay, we get it. He's intimidating. He's scowling. He's not that happy of a guy. He's a a broody soldier dude who was injured, so he walks with a limp. Like, yeah, oh, but he's cool. a rake. Like, he's definitely a rake. 
Oh yeah, he <laughs> they they talk about his good lookingness and you know, but he's all grumpy since the war. Anyway, so he gets this note and he thinks, hmm, I'm getting a whiff of roses because you know these Eversea men and they're smelly, smelly ladies. Ah, oh, yeah. Does he? Does he smell roses? So he's received this note to go to the Montmorency Museum, which he describes as a weird museum that is like an old abandoned dude's house. And then he like, they filled it with things. So there's old furniture from like a king and there's a lot of puppets, which Chase is not into, by the way. And this is a running theme. He hates the puppets. He hates the puppets. But I found this just like, I found this so ridiculous. Like, he, so when he does get to the museum, he enters, and the first exhibit he walks through is like old bedroom furniture. The second thing he walks to through is the puppets and marionettes. And the third thing is the Italian cows, which is where he's headed. And it's just like, well, it's the Italian pastorals, which the Italian they only pastorals. talk about a pastoral as having cows. Yeah. But it's like bedroom, scary where you're going. And it's like these two, like, it's just like, there's going to be something that happens here. There's going to be something that happens here. There's an Egyptian room there too, though. Yeah, but he doesn't go there. It just seemed like very forced. Oh, but I have this fun quote about the puppets. Yes. So he says, the first marionette performance he'd seen gave him a nightmare when he was six years old, and he has avoided them as much as he could ever since. Yeah. (laughs) Um... Before he got to the museum, we left one thing out, which is that we, as the reader, learn that he has written to the East India Company for an assignment and is waiting for a response. So we know from the beginning that his time here is limited, right? So time, the clock is on. Yeah, there's always a clock. So as he enters the room, he sees this painting and there is a cow in the foreground and then up above there's like a moon and an angel playing a half a moon a half moon specifically yeah so it's a half moon with the angel and the angel is described as uh busty and benippled <laughs> i did not catch that oh my gosh i highlighted it <laughs> <laughs> oh great pull kelsey there you go and In this room, he sees a woman. She is the only woman to have come into this museum, and he he recognizes her right away. And she is Rosalind March, Mrs. March, the widow of his former commanding officer in the Napoleonic Wars. Yep, and he couldn't be less happy to see her. No, they had a thing which we don't really know about, but they definitely had a thing back in the day, which is why seeing her is not a good idea. But she didn't know what else to do because her sister has gone missing and she found out he was in London somehow. And her sister apparently was arrested for stealing a bracelet, which she's her sister is described as a bubble brain. So she may have been stealing it. She may have just went to look at it in the sunlight. Who knows? And her sister saw her in Newgate. So Lucy gave her some information, which was the Montmorency and the Italian room. So Rosalind has been sitting in this museum trying to figure out what Lucy was talking about because no one seems to know where Lucy has gone. Yeah, she was awaiting trial and then she all of a sudden disappeared. The record of her being in Newgate disappeared. Everything is gone. 
And lots of criminals are transported and such, but usually there's record. And she was supposed to get a trial, and she never got a trial. Yes. And the reason why Rosalind has gone to Chase is because her sister was friends with a friend of Chase's, which was William Kincaid, who Chase knew from the war. And so she's hoping that Chase might be able to speak to Kincaid because he works in the home office and has some dealings with prisoners and things. And to further uh, complicate, shall we say, Kincaid's character, not only was he hanging out with her sister Lucy, not only is he conveniently in the home office, but he also donated the certain painting that they are looking at in that Italian pastorals room with the half moon, the angel, and the cow. So there's lots of things to connect Kincaid somehow to all of this. But Kincaid refuses to see Rosalind. Anyway, so she he agrees to help her. And on his way out, he sees the little street urchin who gave him the note, who we find out is Liam. And Liam becomes a pretty important character. So we're going to hold on to the fact that Liam's going to come back around. Yep, he literally trails them throughout the book. So, <laughs> and he helps he helps with a lot of move a lot of times to move the plot along. So now things get a little bit crazy as the plot goes. It's a lot of back and forth in seeing different scenes until we even get to the next day. Yes, they each have little experiences. Chase decides that he needs to go to a brothel because he needs to sexy up another lady to get Rosalind out of his brain. While Rosalind is still in the museum. She hasn't even left the museum. She's there a little bit longer. And then on her way out, she has an encounter with the puppet maintenance man. Whoa, whoa, whoa. Hold up. Careful how you say encounter around this podcast. Oh, hey, hey. My (laughs) bad, my bad, my bad. She has um, a conversation with the puppet (laughs) maintenance man. And he talks about his dislike for the pastorals and mentions his daughter. And then they leave it and it's gone. So there you go. And then there's a flashback where we find out a little bit more of how Rosalind and Chase met each other. And so basically, she was the colonel's wife. Yep. They had chemistry from the get-go, but it was obviously very not okay because she was already married to his commanding officer and he had a lot of respect for his commanding officer and they were also friends. And she had, and Rosalind had a lot of respect for her husband. He had taken her because he was enchanted by her, but she had been a little bit below his station. And so he had given her uh, a huge opportunity by marrying her. And he also took on financially her sisters, her two sisters. So she really loved her husband for that, even if maybe she wasn't in love with him and therefore wanted to be very respectful to her husband and wanted other people to respect him too. Yes. So Chase and Rosalind only had one really encounter before they went separate ways, which was they had a kiss in the hallway. They both couldn't help themselves and they both agreed afterwards it would never happen again. However, Chase was reassigned the next day. Yeah. And neither of them knew who had betrayed them or seen them or how the colonel had known. And the colonel really never mentioned anything to Chase. He just reassigned him and left it at that. Yeah. And the scene, actually, this was a good scene, in my opinion, because there's some really sweet writing during this scene. In fact, there's one line where Julianne Long says, the silence began to pulse. And I thought that was really eloquent. And as a reader, uh, I could really feel what she meant in that moment. And I thought that that was a really cool way of talking about something that doesn't exist. 
So I'm going to kind of briefly go, there's a lot of stuff in this book, guys, it gets very convoluted. So I'm going to kind of mention a few things so we can like jump right along to the Uh next plot point. So when Chase goes to this brothel, he sees a painting while he's drunk and kind of stores it in the memory bank about why it's important he remember it. And then Rosalind gets some threatening notes, but she doesn't really know what to do with them because they're vaguely threatening, but they're not explicitly threatening. Chase... Also, he remembers that the angel that he saw in the brothel is very reminiscent of the angel in the pastoral that was donated by Kincaid. And then we get this little flashback about how Kincaid used to draw um, ladies with big tits like around the campfire. (laughs) And he had a really funny sign-off name, which is O. Macacus Big. (laughs) And And that's just important that we spell this. It's O. period. M-C-C-A-C-U-S hyphen B-I-G-G. So, yes. you know, as a reader, if you're reading a little bit fast, you may you may read over it. But anyhow. They make sure to point it out to you that if you say it slowly, though, it, yeah. it is what it is. Yeah. And then he gets a letter from the East India Company saying that he has a job and they leave in a fortnight. So he's preparing to leave. And then Chase writes to his sister Genevieve because she's an art fanatic. And he's like, hey, do you know anything on this painter, Rubinetto? And then I think this is important to remember at this point that it's still the same day. This has all happened within one day. Yes. (laughs) Yes, because that night, or it was the next night anyway, in the next 24 hours, there's a ball. Rosalind sneaks into the ball. Chase is already planning to go to the ball because Kincaid's going to be there, which Rosalind knew. So that was why she talked to Chase about going and talking to him. But she doesn't trust Chase, so she, you know, goes to the ball herself and sneaks in. And then she follows Kincaid into the library where he's having this conversation with guys And she overhears it, and Chase walks in the door and smells roses. He smells the roses. He knows that she's there. He doesn't feel her presence. He doesn't see a shadow. He smells her. He's like, she's here somewhere. (laughs) Just like a bloodhound, ready to go. (laughs) So he kind of comes upon her spying, and this is where we have our first encounter. <laughs> They're literally behind a bookshelf. She was watching the guys and over and eavesdropping from behind a book. And basically he comes up behind her and she kind of pushes her bottom into his cock. And then he's like, oh, that's good. So then he literally lifts her skirt up and, you know, fingers her or he attempts to finger her. But then what happens is while he's lifting her skirt up, he finds the gun strapped to her thigh. Because as we say, she's being threatened, so she's taking precautions. And that really kills the mood. So then he whisks her out of the room. Yeah, so, but this whole thing was like, first of all, there's like so much going on in the scene. They're, you know, behind the bookcase, there's other people talking. And the conversation that they overhear is actually vaguely important. But both of them are too hot and bothered to really take notice of the fact that uh, there's this odd conversation about girls and a pirate stage. And charge a subscription. Yeah, sell shares, capital, debt mermaid (laughs) you know it's like there's this weird conversation and it's important to them although they're just too bothered with each other to notice and then chase gets so irrationally angry to find this pistol strapped to her leg like irrationally angry but wait zoe because he did ascertain that the gun was locked Oh, yeah, he did ascertain that. Good, Thank goodness. But, like, you know, he just, he's just kind of a 
dick in this moment. It's like a very controlling kind of dickish energy that he gives off in this. And he just, I don't know, he's, I, I think we can tell that I'm not a fan. Yeah, he does kind of really overreact a bit when this happens. There's really not a lot of... Like, yeah, she has a pistol struck to his leg. And yeah, he's angry because like, oh, what was she going to do? Shoot her, his friend? But he like is like blooming mad about it. So mad that he pretty much says hello, like orders her to leave, says hello uh, to his friends and then runs out after her. Hello, goodbye to his friends and then runs out after her and then immediately says, we're going to your house. You're taking me home. And then like, are you kidding me? I don't know. No, it was very weird. And then when he gets there, you know, they talk and this and that. And then he comes up with, uh, you know, after this encounter and she shows him the threatening letters and he's like, we should marry. And she's like, what? Yeah, the actual words are, we ought to marry. And I will say it was like, it's kind of, it's it's kind of a cute moment where where the hero, like, he can't come to grips with his feelings. He doesn't know how to express the things that he's feeling, so he decides to be honorable instead. And, you know, and it is done with an idea that he's protecting her. She has these notes, so he's like, okay, but if we marry, then I can protect you, you know. And she's like, no, that's okay. Yeah, she's now a widow and she's in the position to like figure out what she wants with her life. She doesn't want to give up that freedom and says, you know, that's not enough reason for me to do so. So at this point. Oh, and then plus he says, oh, I'm going to India in two weeks. And she's like, yeah, that's great. I don't want to go to India. So guess we're not going to do this. Yeah, which I appreciate. Now it's kind of another thing that Julianne Long tends to do in her books, right? She actually like gives the truths before they become a big problem for the characters, right? Um, So we've had Rosalind come clean about her threatening letters, which she didn't divulge in the very first part, but she has now divulged. And we also have Chase saying, okay, well, I have this ticking time bomb of our relationship. So everybody knows the cards are all on the table. Yes. And I will say it's always nice when there's an honest conversation happening. Yeah. And and that is kind of the catalyst, this conversation of them both being honest for him agreeing to truly help her because all of a sudden he has kind of a little bit more of all of the facts and he does agree that something fishy is going on. Yep. So then we're going to have a rapid fire informational session again, guys. So the next day, yeah, it's crazy. Chase gets the note from his sister that tells him there's no such painter as Rubinetto in her understanding. And she studies classical paintings. Um, however, Rubinetto does mean cock in Italian. So she feels like someone's having a jest. And <laughs> there's Chase goes to the museum and there's a puppet show outside the museum. And they sing the song of Colin Eversey, which everyone hates the ballad of Colin Eversey, who is an Eversey. And then they give this weird description of the painting in the Italian wing that he's looked at, and he doesn't quite understand it, and then moves on. And he has a conversation with Kincaid, and while Kincaid isn't necessarily... He's denying things, but at the same time, too, he's denying it in a way that makes Colin suspicious. And he meets up with Rosalind, they go back to the museum, they look at the painting again, they don't know what to do. And then he says, hey, I want to show you this angel because he's remembered that the angel in the brothel looks the same as the angel in the painting at the museum. So he actually takes Rosalind to the brothel. But before that, they see our lovely street urchin friend Liam. And he kind of talks about, oh, there's people coming out all the time. And I make money by holding the horses, which is a bullshit job that people just give him coins for. 
And he's like, there's been a lot of like rich dudes coming by. And so I've actually been making a lot of money here. And I'm here all day because these people are coming out all the time, day and night. So that's interesting. But it's just kind of an aside at this point. And yep. then the clerk at the front desk of the museum who was helpful yesterday is no longer helpful. And they ask Liam to kind of count how many men come in and out. And then they go to the brothel and look at the painting. And she's like, yes, I recognize the angel. And guys, that was just a very long day. Whee. Yeah. And you left out a few points because they weren't necessary. But yeah. yeah There's like, even more guys. <laughs> yeah. Th- that's the thing that like gets me is like, they get to the museum and Liam is like, hey, people come in and out at weird hours. And then they like go into the museum and then they come out and they're like, oh, hey, Liam said people come in at weird hours. Now we sh- we think we should ask Liam to like notice who comes in and out and count them and this and that. And it's just like, why did it have to be like that? <laughs> because it's, yeah. it's like A, B, C, D, A, F, G, C. I mean, it's yeah. just this weird pattern of stuff happening. So back to the brothel, though, right? Oh, yeah. The brothel is fun. Um, Because in the brothel, we meet a character. A Mr. LeVay has come in off. LeVay, you say? LeVay. We've heard this name before in the last book. It was, I believe, who Violet uh, was told there is a LeVay in her future. Oh, yeah. Oh, that was just with the gypsy... um, daughter said she just like screamed out love <laughs> yeah so now we have this connection to a love so who could this be so love is hanging out at the brothel and he's just there to hang out so we kind of move past him and up into the bedroom that holds the painting yeah and this is just a reminder that this is rosalind and chase chase has taken a respectable woman to a brothel to look at a dirty painting of an angel pleasuring a man and what happens though is that rosalind becomes like a little bit shy and then earnest and she actually says does it really feel as good as the painting makes it seem and I just feel like it's a really honest moment, which shows like kind of even though she was a widow, like she has a little bit of naivety. And I really liked that moment for her character. And then Chase says some, he shares some carnal knowledge and it's kind of a sweet scene and then offers to show her all of it as she deserves to know. And poor Rosalind is all hot and bothered and disappointed uh, because she's finally comes to terms with the fact that Chase just really wants to get in her pants. And so she makes a strong exit. Yes. And I will say too, like talking about that and all the carnal pleasures that he can show her. And at this time in a running theme in a lot of these books is that the women were very sheltered from things like sex. You know, they were told it was a duty. They weren't told it was fun. It was all about the man's orgasm. It wasn't about the female orgasm. Yeah, for sure. I, I I mean, she was sheltered and she even she shares some some information about her as a character later and that she, you know, had did she did have orgasms with her husband, but they kind of kept everything pretty vanilla, it sounds like. But I was really angry at Chase in this scene. And I'm kind of surprised that the author wrote him this way, because, yes, a lot of these books are these men sharing knowledge with the women. And yet. He was kind of a dick in this scene. He was like, I know so much and you deserve to know. And it was just slimy. Like it didn't work for me. I felt it was slimy. And then I was happy with the author though for having the woman make a strong exit. Like, you know what? 
this is a bummer. It was cool to learn this, but now I feel like all you want is to get in my pants. So I thought that was an interesting choice for the author. Yeah. And also to time and place. He Chase is not very good at time and place. Oh, no, he's not. <laughs> <laughs> all right. So next, I believe they go to the artist's house of the two angel paintings. Yes. Which is kind of an odd thing to be like, let's go look at a painting to confirm it's the same angel in the other painting. And then let's figure out where this painting was painted by. Exactly. And so now they're going to go talk to the painter because they obviously know that he's alive and well from going to this brothel. So they meet him and he is really nice. And he's like, I'm an artist. Money speaks a lot to me. And he, we find out that the painting in the museum was commissioned recently, and the commissioner was a Mr. Wellendowed. Yeah, again, that's W-E-L-L-A-N-D hyphen D-O-W-D, Mr. Wellendowed. Mr. Wellendowed. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So now they know that there is a kind of link here. We've got the the weird names uh, happening. So they decide to have a night at the museum. Yes. So they're going to sneak into the museum. They've made this decision. But first, 70 other things have to happen before we get back to the night at the museum. Oh, God. So many other things. (laughs) First, Rosalind actually scolds Chase because he let slip that he was meant to be in London to talk to his cousin to be the vicar. And she's like, that poor man is waiting on you to give him a job. You need to go tell him he has a job. (laughs) Yeah. So he spends some time with him. Then he kind of stops by the museum and talks to Liam about who's been coming and going. And Liam reports that different numbers of people are going in and coming out. And different people go in, then come out. Sometimes the same people come out and sometimes different people come out. And the numbers don't match up. So not only does Liam tell them who came in and out, but he also has previously mentioned, hey, his sister didn't come home last night, and now he's found out a little bit more information about his sister. She was arrested for stealing. Oh my goodness, now we have two girls that have been arrested from stealing, and not only has she been arrested for stealing, but she is missing from Newgate because he went to look for her there and she wasn't there. And then poor Chase and Rosalind are actually really upset for Liam because they really like Liam and he's kind of become their little sidekick. And they're like, well, no, they've hurt Liam now. So we really need to get going on this investigation. Yeah, It's not enough Lucy's missing. Now Liam's sister is missing. So now it's a big problem. And Chase finds a connection. He finds that the Charlie, there was the same Charlie that arrested both girls. So obviously he was bribed to do something different with them. And with a, you know, uh, kind of a threat and I think a bigger bribe, he learns that this man, this Charlie, has been paid to report if he has really pretty criminals before they've been booked. So the idea is that they don't get actually booked and that they're going to go somewhere else where they won't be harmed, uh, whereas the law would have them transported or hung. So, so far, this Charlie offers up that there have been three pretty girls. He's only done three. So they're getting in on the ground floor of this uh, trafficking. And... Interestingly enough, he lets loose that he was paid by uh, O. Macacus Big. Ah! So, oh no, Kincaid is definitely involved in somehow, some way. 
Yeah. So, and the three girls are Lucy, Maggie, who is Liam's sister, and Cora Middlebury. Who, who we don't know yet. We don't know yet. Yep. So finally, that long day has passed and our planned night at the museum Mm -hmm. is here. And so they sneak into the museum and I wrote in all caps, silent sneaking wrought with sexual tension. Yes, because if they're in a dark room together, guys, it's getting on. Yeah, so of course we have to pass the bedroom room, right? The bedroom furniture room. And that... So they have encounter number two here. Yes. Not in the bed, as you would think, but up against a dresser because there's not, it's not like there's anything going on right now. There's not like something to be doing. Yeah, they kind of like looked around the museum and they're like, well, we don't see anything fishy, but oh, this sexual tension. Let's fuck against the dresser. Yeah, so they do that. And then Chase has another great line. Again, I really feel like not only do I not like Chase, but our author doesn't like (laughs) Chase. Because his next line is, quote, well, that's done then. (laughs) Yeah, you know, Chase is really good at the romantic words. He's just like, well, good thing we got rid of that sexual tension by having sex. (laughs) Yeah, I just, okay, so we're going to move on and we're going to leave the museum because that's what happens next. But I'm I'm going to read my next bullet point because, again, (laughs) I wrote, Rosalind smells her husband's cigar. This isn't really important. Nothing is found. Because she also doesn't mention it to Chase. She just is like, hmm, that smells like my husband's gross tobacco that he used to smoke. There's just... So many, like, details that are here maybe to, like, make us figure something out. And they just, like, they're so unnecessary. Anyhow. They really are. And so then they go back to Rosalind's house. And Rosalind lets loose about her conversation with the marionette cleaner, which she doesn't think that much about. But she's like, I don't know, this dude was cleaning and he said something to me. Well, and it's very important that the author remind us readers about this plot point in case we had forgotten that there was something important about puppets in this book. Yes. And then Chase leaves like the ass that he is. Yeah. But they kind of just discuss like okay well we've had sex once you're leaving soon anyway like maybe we could just keep doing that until i go yeah and he leaves her with another great line dream of it rosalind and i'm just like (laughs) i felt just like gross slimy ickiness i didn't i i was not feeling it yeah So then Chase goes back to the museum early in the morning and, like, snatches up the puppet guy because this puppet dude is out in front of the museum on pretty much every nice day. And Chase is like, I know you've been dropping me hints. Let's talk about it. And it turns out it's the puppet cleaner Rosalind spoke to at the beginning of the book. And then he's like, oh, my daughter Cora is missing. And Chase is like, Cora, that's the third girl everything's coming together so nicely there were clues in the beginning and they were clues they weren't just superfluous things oh wait they were superfluous anyhow (laughs) and um so yeah chase also has to finish it because he needs to go back to penny rail green to say goodbye to his family before he leaves um for his trip so he's like cool we got one more day to solve this mystery guys because i gotta go tomorrow Yeah, not only does he need to solve the mystery, but he tells Rosalind, he kind of gives her an ultimatum, right? He's like, he's leaving tomorrow, so like, you should have sex with me again, is kind of the feeling that I get from this. And it's really funny, because like, I feel like 10 pages ago, we were talking about the fortnight that we had. And then it's gone. Yes, a couple of, yeah, a couple of days have passed. 
And I know he's going back to Penny Royal Green, and so that's what some of the days are. But, like, it just doesn't quite line up. There's, like, this – there's a decent amount of time, and then now I'm leaving tomorrow. So maybe you should have sex with me one more time. Yeah, which they do because they decide to sneak back into the museum. And they already know this whole bedroom is set up for them. And so they have encounter number three on the big, dusty bed in the museum while they're supposed to be figuring out how it's connected to the missing girls. Yeah, and you know what? We we didn't talk about in the beginning if we remembered anything about these books. And this is what I remembered. I remembered... See, I remembered nothing, so this is okay. Yeah. So, but I only remembered this scene. It was like imprinted <laughs> in my brain because when I first read it, I was like, like, there's this moment of, like, he pulls back the curtains and you can, like, see the the dust in the air. And it's, like, this eloquent, beautiful description of, like, shimmering. And all I could think of was just, like, <sighs> dust everywhere. I don't. I and they, like. And then she's going to climb naked. Naked on in the dusty bed. old bed. And there's oh. things to do. And there could be people about. They've been hearing giggling. They've been hearing weird sounds. I just was, like. Guys, they're there's... supposed to be, like, finding people, and then they're like, oh, and this is the thing that I don't remember, because the bed is all dressed, but apparently it's been in, enclosed in curtains, as all those beds were at the time, but yep. the curtains, like, he draws the curtain shut, so then they're even in a darker bed, and I'm like, those curtains are not clean, everything's gross, like, yeah. don't... Don't have sex on that, please. Yeah. And every, so this was the first time, this is my third romance novel that I've ever read. And this is the first time I read about a man going down on a woman because this, that happens in this scene. And I did not feel like that was a great introduction to reading about that on the written page because I was literally already just like skeezed out by this dusty, musty, antique bed oh can you imagine the creaking oh my god oh god no (laughs) like it's gonna be so loud and like and I mean yes like really good because it's not in all the books that we you know a lot of times the man going down on the woman it's often I will say it's more often with a widow who's like oh I'm experienced and then the guy's like but have you experienced this and she's like I have not oh my gosh well and I think like I think there's actually a lot to be said for things that you know you can learn not necessarily learn but like feel more comfortable with as a woman reading these books and feeling like yes these things should be normal and natural and not taboo and not not talked about so but we can we can get into that another time but they not only do does he go down on her, but he like throws himself into a 69 position and sticks his cock in her mouth. And I was like, there you go. So it was just again aggressive and like it wasn't he obviously wasn't forcing her, but it was just like the scene was just too much for me because of it's the dust. Mainly because they're in a dusty, gross museum bed. Yeah, I couldn't, I couldn't. It was not like a wig that I could put to the side, you know? No, it was just... I will say, too, I didn't quite understand this scene. And I'm just like, cool, you're having sex. You're 69ing. You're both in this gross, disgusting bed that probably smells musty, you know? And like, there's three women whose lives depend on you guys. Yeah. Can we They make? need to figure out this dilemma because they need to find her sister and Cora and Maggie. And yet they're like... Brief sex break, y'all. Yeah, there's, like, something about being on the clock, and then there's something about just, like, completely, like, disregarding the clock. I, anyhow, I think we should get out of this dusty bed and move on. We definitely should. So they wrap things up, they get dressed, and they hear this weird, faint giggling sound, and... 
So they start searching again, and then Chase remembers that Rosalind was wearing a feather in her hat when he met her, and he saw it moving in the breeze, and he was like, hmm, maybe it wasn't her moving her head that caused the breeze. Maybe there was a breeze. And so they go over to the painting, and they find out there's a hole in the cow's ass. Yeah, I mean, that's great. That's that's funny and everything, but yeah. it is so, it's so far-fetched. Like, oh, yes, you know, by Jove, I remember her feather flittering. And then our marionette cleaner guy shows up and he's like, oh, there's something funky about that wall. Yeah. It's connected to this brothel. Like I heard tell, I looked at the plants. He suddenly got a hold of the plants for the thing and found a hidden tunnel that leads to the mezzaluna. And then Chase is like, hmm, doesn't Kincaid own the mezzaluna? Yes, the, the twice aforementioned derelict theater that Kincaid owns in Covenant Garden. <gasps> Yeah. I mean, and it's not only, I mean, this one I kind of shook my head about because it's called the Mezzaluna, which means half moon. And the painting has a half moon on it. And I was like, oh, I could have, I probably could have gotten that one. But there were just so many things going on that I like literally couldn't figure out where to focus. Yeah. So they find out how to, well, they accidentally find out how to open the hidden wall that's behind the painting. And then there's a lot of silliness that happens in the tunnel. Someone gets knocked out. There is costumes everywhere. (laughs) The slapstick hijinks begin to ensue. Like, it feels very slapsticky. And I know that I'm adding a sh in there because it literally, it needs it. It's so like, (laughs) ba-da-ba-ba-da-ba. It really is. And then they make their way to the tunnel and they find the secret entrance. And the guy behind the thing is Mr. Woodcock. And so Chase introduces himself as Hugh G. Rection. Yeah, that's pretty good. Again, H-U-G-H space G period space W-R-E-X-I-O-N Hugh G. Rexian or, you know. Yeah. <laughs> and they find Well Endowed is the clerk from the Montmorency. The clerk that was first helpful and then not helpful. So he's been blackmailed into helping with this whole adventure. He has, yeah, his his family has been threatened, but he's also kind of been enjoying himself. And then all of a sudden he's like, oh, no, 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 it's fine. I'll help you guys. I'd much rather be out of this. He's so like, this he is getting ship. a little too dodgy for me. So, like, I'm just going to slip out. Like, And so they find out, oh, Macacus Big is running the whole thing. And, oh, wait, it's Kincaid. <laughs> yeah, of course. And basically this is a, a, a new type of brothel where there are fantasy rooms. Yes. And so the girls not are just paying their debts on their back, but they can pay their debts faster on their backs. But they can also just act out fantasies like there's a, you know, a, a pirate scene where a girl is lashed to the mast and she's just kind of going like, ah, 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 and there's a mermaid and uh, et cetera, et cetera. Yeah. And so some of them are seasoned girls and other of them are girls such as Lucy and Maggie and Cora who were imprisoned. And then they're basically spirited away the secret place and given one week to decide that either they're going to participate in the fantasy world, whether or not they have sex with the patrons or not is up to them, but they will be released faster if they do. And they will eventually earn their freedom instead of earning it in the prison. And if they decide not to participate, then they're going to get thrown back in prison. Yeah, so Lucy and Maggie are still in that week of decision, but Cora has agreed to be a mermaid, although she can't stop giggling. So that's where all the giggling's been coming from. 
And so Kincaid shows up and he talks to them. He's like, look, I was bored and like, this is kind of fun. And I'm not a rapist or anything. They all decide to do it on their own. Yeah, he actually says the words, not a rapist. They all capitulate, which is, again, just, it's just a weird, it's a weird decision from this author because I don't feel like her other characters are like these two. No, but it's kind of downplays and like Chase is obviously very affronted, but also too, it's like, no, you're just extorting people for sex because, you know, that's really good too. Like, yeah, he's, yeah, to be honest, his actions haven't been much better. Chase's actions haven't been that much better. No, but, and then Kincaid is like, I was thinking about inviting you, but like, you're so righteous and all of us are kind of like, is is Chase very righteous? Because he seems to kind of like go back and forth on the righteousness levels. But like if all of this wasn't enough that we've like solved the mystery, now Kincaid decides to offer up that he was the one who saw them kissing and he was the one who told the colonel because he wanted to live through the war and needed Chase not to be distracted, which is such a strong argument. I don't, yeah, like, it's so but, weak. <laughs> and then Rosalind comes in to say, oh, well, the colonel forgave us, you know, he told me so, and, but he never told me who told our secret, but he never forgave that person. He thought that person was the lowest of the low. That really doesn't affect Kincaid, because Kincaid's an ass, and he just kind of, like, laughs it off, so. Yeah, he doesn't really care. So then they make a, they tell Kincaid that he better find his way on a ship, or Chase is gonna expose what he's done, and then Cora gets reunited with her dad to do puppety things it actually says that i think this is important like in the paragraph where they're leaving it says like they go off no doubt to do puppety things and i just like (laughs) i really i had a real hard time with that one i was just like come on all right let's move on and maggie and liam go stay at rosalind's house with lucy and she you know mother hens everybody and chase is like cool i'm going to penny royal green bye and then he asks he he takes the rubinetto painting from the montmorency the one with the hole in the cow's ass and he gives it to his brother colin because as he said throughout the entire book colin only ever talks about cows yep uh, so Colin has the painting. That part I really liked. I That was like a happy ending for me. <laughs> yes. Then Chase comes back from Penny Royal Green and they have encounter number four, which is good old goodbye sex. Yeah, in a chair. Because, I mean, we did have sex in a bed once in this, but it was a dusty old antique uh, bed. So I don't know if any of that counts as like typical. Um, although romance novels aren't known for the typical. But yeah, in a chair. And to be fair, whenever they have enjoyable sex in weird positions, like in such like a chair, I'm like, "Mm, that doesn't sound very comfortable. (laughs) (laughs) No, it it just is like the mechanics. Anyhow. Anywho. (laughs) And so then he says goodbye and Rosalind realizes she loves him and she's a fool to let him go. So she runs to try to catch him before he makes a ship and he is still on her front door. So she literally runs right into him. Yeah. And Chase has... A good moment where he says he was wrong. He shouldn't leave. And he was actually made to love and protect specifically you, he says to Rosalind. And I have this just moment where this whole paragraph that Chase is speaking to her, I, where was this Chase the rest of the book? He was so, such a much better character in those last few lines where you're like, Oh, if you had been this guy, but maybe like reserved or, or, or something, but not an actual asshole, Mm -hmm. I would have really liked you. 
Yeah. And then Rosalind has also another shining moment because she says she loves him too. And they quote, ought to marry. So she kind of gets the last word there. Which is great because she gets to propose to him, which is always fun. Yep. Yes, and so Lucy and Maggie end up going to Penny Royal Green, and that's a happy ending. So they're going to hang out with Chase and Rosalind and Penny Royal Green. And Lucy gets to go to Miss Endicott's school for recalcitrant girls, which we'll talk about more in another book. Yep, and that gives everybody a nice happy ending. Again, no epilogue for us, so we are bereft. I will say she's really not good with the epilogues, and it drives me up a wall. I know. I know that they talk more about them in the other books, but it's pretty sad. So, Kelsey, yes. now that we've finished. Oh, my gosh. The long, winding tale. The long, winding tale of Chase and Rosalind. Shall we adjourn to the parlor? We shall. All right, guys, so this is how we're going to tell you how to get in touch with us. And we welcome all feedback as well as comments and what you like about us. We really like those. So right now you can get in touch with us by email at romancepod at gmail.com. And we also have an Instagram. That's the letter T, N, and then the word strumpets. So T is in Tom, N is in Nancy, strumpets is our Instagram. Excellent. <laughs> and we also have a website. So you can find us at romancepod.com. And we're also going to have a YouTube by the time that this drops. We're also going to be putting our our episodes on YouTube. So if you want to share those out on social media, uh, if that's the way that you'd like to do it, please do so. Um, and if you really want to know what's going on in the world of tea and strumpets, you're welcome to sign up for our email notifications. You'll find those on our website. But I have one big ask for everyone, and I think Kelsey would echo this ask. We are a new podcast, and the way that new podcasts get found is three ways. Way way number one, rate. Way number two, review. Way number three, subscribe. I bet you guys have never heard that before. (laughs) But yeah, please, those things would really help us. That's how other people will find us. So if you like what you're hearing, if you can take a minute out of your day to give us a quick star rating, a quick review, and click that subscribe button, that'll really help us out. Please help us out so we can keep coming back. Yeah. And then one last thing, we really would love to hear from all of you guys about book recommendations. So while Kelsey and I are going to be focusing specifically on Regency books more of the time and specifically traditional ones, because that's what is our favorite, we know that there are a ton of other awesome books for all sorts of different preferences. So we'd love to hear from those of you who know those books, who enjoy those books, who love those books, we'd love to hear your recommendations. So if you have a book that you'd like to let other people know about that's maybe not something that we would cover here, or it can be something we'd cover here too, uh, just send us a quick one to two sentence stinger on the book and why you love it. And we would love to share that with our listeners uh, here in the parlor. All right. Let's break this book down. Let's just like real talk about it. Let's have some real talk about this book for sure. So I was, as I was reading this book, I was trying to think about like 
the book to me felt like it was trying too hard. It was trying too hard in so many ways. And I was like, why? What makes it to me as a reader subpar? I don't think it's any surprise to know that I had an unfavorable opinion of this book. But to me, I felt like the main thing that made it subpar is that it tells us things as a reader rather than lets us come to the realization ourselves. The writing doesn't trust us to come to the right conclusions. And that was done through a lot of like battering of characterizations, right? So it was like, you know, Chase was scowly, Chase had a limp, Chase was mean, Chase was nasty after the war, like Chase is grumpy, uh, Liam is going to call him that gimpy cove. Like there was just like all of these things that were just, you know, Cora and her father left to do puppety things. I was like, really? Yeah, I will say that I actually enjoyed the book a little bit because of its convoluted plot. And I liked the fact that the author, she got better at wrapping things up a little bit. So there wasn't like in Colin's book, it was so convoluted, but like it was convoluted without wrapping it up anywhere. It was just like facts thrown out versus like, this convoluted had a conclusion. Everything kind of drew towards the same point, And it was a lot more, in a way, more linear because it all drew to the same conclusion. I'll totally, I'll totally agree with you on that. Because you're right. Every little hint she dropped in the beginning, for example, the half moon in the painting, right? And then we heard, as a reader, we read about Kincaid's derelict, empty theater called the Mezzi Luna you know, those things tied up, right? You're right. Like there was a line between the two of them. And at the end, we got that conclusion. I still just felt like she was trying too hard. She was so excited to write this Mary Chase and this, sorry, no pun intended, and this <laughs> mystery, this this sexy mystery. But it just, it was still too much. And I don't think, I do think it was a step forward from Colin's book, but I don't think the rest of Pennyrail Green has much of a mystery until does Lions and Olivia's book have a bit of a mystery in it? Uh, not really. Okay, because the their story, you've got the mystery points kind of from book one to book 10 and then book 11 wraps it up. But yeah, regardless, I just feel like you know, we don't get this later with her. So I, I think she kind of moves away from this and realizes that when she when she has a little bit of a simpler thing, she does a better better job with it. Yes. And I think this is almost like an Eversea theme. I think she wanted the Eversees to have more convoluted plots, you know, because Colin's book was convoluted. Chase's book was convoluted. Miles wasn't. It was more sweet. It was more, there was less of a mystery going on, you know, yeah. and just a natural progression. And I think that, Maybe she was trying to really differentiate the families. Granted, we're only three books in, but it's a little less mystery-esque in Miles's book than in Chase's book. But Colin's book was very similar in that way. Yeah. So this book also has a lot of plot points and it falls under a lot of tropes. Oh my God, it does. Let's list them out here. We've got the alpha hero. We've got the fling. We've got forbidden love. Military, which... Could they tell you enough that Chase was a military and had been in the Napoleonic Wars and had been injured? I swear <laughs> to God, they mentioned it at least twice a chapter. Yeah, yeah, for sure. And because he's in the military, he's a protector. Yes. And I feel like there was a little bit of a theme of redemption because Chase never felt good about his whole encounter with Rosalind and he felt like he betrayed Colonel March that way. And so there was a bit of that redemption at the end where he found out the Colonel knew and had forgiven him. Absolutely. I agree. 
So then we have the reunion between Rosalind and Chase. Um, she's a widow. He has scars, actual physical scars, guys. <laughs> mm-hmm. And it's not one of our list of tropes, but I will say solve a mystery together is definitely something that is very common in these books. There's like that common goal, that common mystery that they need to figure out together. I think that if it's not a trope on any other list, we should petition to get it on because it is definitely (laughs) uh, a typical thing that you'll find frequently in in historical romances. Yes. And so I think I know your opinion on this one, but let me know, how do you think Chase rates as a hero? Um, Yeah. Okay. On a scale of one to 10, that's what we've been doing. Uh, I have a number in my head. I am curious, actually, what number would you think I would give him? Oh, I think you're going to give him like a four, maybe a three. <laughs> ding, 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 ding. Oh, I know you so well. I, yeah, I give Chase a three for sure. I do not like him. I mean, he's not the worst. He's, I've read other books where like. He could have been much worse. He could have been much worse. I, I, I don't give him a three because he was like a little bit, you know, too alpha for me or like too kind of sleazy. It's like the combination of things. To me, he just was an idea that wasn't developed and it was like trope, mm-hmm. trope, 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 you know, gimpy cove. He was too, he was too broody hero, but once we got the backstory, there wasn't more development beyond that. Yeah, you kept kind of waiting for that to redeem him. And I just was like, nope, that's just kind of who he is. He's, he's a little one dimensional. And I just, I just, uh, yeah. And to be fair, I will say, I'm going to give my ratings at the same time on this one because I kind of have a similar opinion of the heroine. I feel like with Chase, and maybe that was why, because I had zero memory of the book, because both the hero and the heroine to me were just kind of blah. Mm -hmm. Like, I liked Rosalind because she, like, was a good, I thought she was a good stand-up woman, but at the same time, too, I really didn't see her development. I really didn't get to know her as well. And I really didn't feel an emotional connection to Chase either. So for me, I would rate them both at like a 4.5 or a 5. Like for me, tipping, I know that's pretty low for me. But I feel like tipping into like below 5, I have really strong dislike of them. But for me, 5 is just kind of like, I just had zero opinion. Yeah, I, so for Rosalind, I, my opinion changes and I, I would give her a six actually because I think she's double the character that chases in my opinion I think that actually she has some really feminist moments of like that time she leaves the brothel and is like this is what this man wants of me and also that she gets that kind of final word at the end of the book where we uh you know we ought to marry she not only kind of gets to rub that in his face mm-hmm. but not but in a, in a sweet yeah. way without being kind of uh sour about it and I also think, like, she is a widow. She is taking care of her sisters. You know, she's looking out for her sisters. She's doing everything she can. When she doesn't know if Chase is for sure going to help her, she straps a pistol to her leg when she's getting threatening letters, and she goes out to try to see if she can find any information about her sister. She's a she's a strong woman. Like, she's a – Yeah. I would say, you know, like, when we talk about our feminist recap, I'm going to say she's a supporter. Oh, for sure. Like, I would say – supporting feminine wise i would say the book does a good supporter in the feminist zone yeah i it's interesting because chase is such kind of a dick and so is kincaid but they're outrightly dicks but then rosalind has these moments like if rosalind had let's say succumbed 
to the tension while they were in the brothel and they'd had sex in that room, I think like I would have felt completely differently, right? I would have felt like she gave in when he was yeah. like, there's so much more, Rosalind, I can show you. And then instead she mm-hmm. had this feminist empowering moment and was like, that's what he wants of me. Okay, I'm, I'm, I'm out. Yeah, but I also feel too, even in the first scene in the library, she was very much like, well, I don't know when I'm going to get this again. So like, give it to me, you know? And actually there, there is a moment and another time it's during the scene of the, that the two of them kiss for the first time where Chase sort of makes it known that he wants to kiss her, but she's the one who closes the gap. And I think the quote is something like, Mm -hmm. you know, and in this, she made herself complicit in her husband's, you know, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? Um, you know, in the betrayal of her husband. So I, I yeah. think like, you know, she is saying, I make decisions for myself. And these are, you know, these are things that I am deciding. So I, I appreciate that about her. Agreed. Yeah. But I completely agree with you when you say that she just you don't remember her. Like, I couldn't remember her name for the life of me. I couldn't remember a thing about yeah. her character. I just remembered the dusty sex scene in, in the museum. <laughs> I mean, I think that's probably the most memorable. But of memorable, I do have a couple great quotes to share with you. All right. Shoot. And one is more a serious one, and the other one's just kind of funny. And they both take place pretty much in the same scene around the dusty bedroom scene. Nice. (laughs) And so the first one is our more serious one, which was, she wished he understood that true strength sometimes had to do with the ability to simply surrender to life, to circumstances, to uncertainty, to his own humanity and fallibility. And I think that this is just like, this is what you want to get from Chase, you know, that feeling of him kind of coming to terms with it. And she's kind of like, he's so rigid and he's so like shuts people out just because he doesn't expect more from them. And he doesn't want to understand what it is to like be vulnerable with other people. And so he just shuts them out instead. And it's like, this is kind of what we wanted of Chase to make him a better hero. Yeah, I think that the best moments we get of Chase are from Rosalind's perspective. Like, she has these kind of thoughts and moments about him that, you know, you as a reader start to, like, feel some attachment to her because she sees this other part of him. But you just don't connect with it enough because we never see that part. We don't see it. We don't see it, right? Yeah, exactly. After the sexy scene, when we hear the giggles, <laughs> um, Rosalind is quoted as saying, Ghost, she whispered into his ear. He turned his head toward her and scowled so insultingly she practically heard it. Yeah. Uh, Which I just love because, like, I just found it so hilarious because all we've talked about is his broody face and his scowly face. And he just scowled so hard at her when she was like, ghost, because that's her conclusion for a museum with a lot of old things. And she hears random giggles and she's like, there's faux show ghosts in here. Yeah. And he's like, bitch, please. Yeah. And I think (laughs) it's funny. And but I also think that like, because I think she was trying to be funny and a little bit, but also like is it ghosts? Like, what else can they make? What other conclusion yeah. can they make? But then at the same time, like, the exactly. way that the writer writes about Chase, right? Scowled so insultingly, she practically heard it. Instead of, like, scowled so, you know, strongly, she practically heard it. Because those little choices that she makes for Chase, I think, are the things that make me just, like, ugh, with him. 
I think that those yeah. kind of, you know, just writing style choices. But I still love her as yeah. a writer, in fact, because I think a lot of the time she does have such a great job of infusing humor into the book. And there's another mm-hmm. time that they're sneaking through the museum. And there's just this passage that is my favorite from the book because it's it's actually more just showcasing her writing. And so um, mm-hmm. they're, as I said, they're, they're sneaking through the museum and it says, um, past the stone slabs of ancient words, someone's shopping list, a poem. Regardless, it was forever profound now that it had been etched in stone. So I just... <laughs> so great. Yeah, I just thought it was really... Um, it's true, though. I think there was actually an ancient study where they found this writing and they're like, I wonder what this could be. And it was literally just an inventory list. And they're like, well, this is great because now we, we know all these words were, these ancient words were for this because they figured out it was an inventory. And forever profound as it is etched in stone. Exactly. So we've got now our encounter counter to discuss, and we clearly talked about all of our encounters as we passed them in the book, but we have a total of four encounters in this book. Which is like moving up in the world, too. I will say as the series goes on, we get more and more encounters. Yeah, and you know what (laughs) I just realized is that we should actually add our encounter counter to our spreadsheet. We do have, you know... We like spreadsheets here. So we have been keeping track of all of our <laughs> ratings and all of uh, kind of those important notes from the book. And we're going to make that available to you guys on our website in some way at some point. But I think we'll we'll add a column for Encounter Counter because, yeah, it is interesting to see that's a good plan. how many times they have an encounter every book. Yeah, and good to rate them against other books. So although you and I both weren't big fans of the characters, what – would you say about like the steaminess or the tension in this book? I would say like for me, I the the tension was good and the steaminess for was good, but for me I couldn't get past the locations of majority of their encounters. Yep. Like I just was like what are you doing? Cuz it's not like they snuck away to a closet and like I understand, like, the danger is part of what, like, the danger of being caught is what makes it sexier. But at the same time, too, I was like, guys, you're on a mission. This is not the time. It was, yeah, it wasn't just the location. It was the time. It was, you know, there's a time and a place. And there's one thing if it's like, oh, we're supposed to be going into dinner right now. You know, we might get caught because we've been gone too long. Or it's like three women's lives depend on us. Let's have a quick screw against the dresser. I just like, I also couldn't do it. To me, I felt like, you know, we talked about kind of our steaminess ratings and you mentioned like, you know, a sweet book would be like a cup of tea, right? And I would say this is like that cup of tea that you left out on the counter and forgot about and then came back and were like (laughs) kind of sad and wished that you still had that cup of tea to drink, but now it's cold and like you take a sip and you're like, oh God, but I'm thirsty, so I'm just going to keep drinking this tea. (laughs) Yeah. You're like, oh, this is what I really wanted, but it's just been a hair too long long so now it's not great anymore but it still has that essence of what could be great yeah it has a nice flavor but like uh anyhow so yeah I just I didn't find this book particularly steamy or sexy at all just because yeah I got wrapped up in the the time and the place yeah so I would say at least in my opinion that this is not the first book I would recommend to someone I would be like if you really care about reading the series from start to finish, then read it. But if you don't mind skipping a book, you could probably skip this book and no one would care. Yeah, 
I would say the same, but maybe even stronger, <laughs> which is like, <laughs> I would recommend to people this book is not worth their time. Uh, again, if you're a completist <laughs> and you want to read the series and you're a fast reader, um, Kelsey and myself, I believe, are pr- I would call us very fast readers. Oh, but, yes. you know, not everybody is a really fast reader. So if it takes you a few days or a week to complete a romance novel like this, oh, by all means, please skip this one. It's not, it's Don't totally not time. worth it. You've already spent an hour or an hour and a half of your time listening to us fetch about it. Like, go straight on to number four. <laughs> so final note for this book, what would you rate it on a scale of one to ten? Uh, probably like, I would honestly say it's like almost like a three, like maybe a four. Yeah. Like, I want to like it. Yeah. And I do like a good convoluted plot because I like a good adventure story, but like, there really wasn't a lot to recommend about it as far as everything else. I, like, think, honestly, like, my favorite character in the book was Liam. Like, Liam was oh, my yeah, favorite Liam's character. <laughs> Liam is Liam has the most development. He has the most personality. He has probably the biggest arc of anything, like, the rise, the fall mm-hmm. of Liam. Oh, and I know we didn't get into it, but that's because there was way too much to discuss. And we had to, you know, talk about our main characters. But... Uh, yeah, I would give this book a three also. Um, you know, the writing isn't terrible. It's readable. I just think it's not really worth your time. I remember disliking this book. And so I was looking forward to rereading it again because I remembered loving Colin's book. So I mm-hmm. thought, okay, I didn't love that as much. Maybe I would like this one, you know, more because maybe my tastes have changed. Yeah. But oh my God, I never want to read this book again. I well, just don't. You I don't just have never to, want to Zoe. Read it again. You can. We left oh, it that. <laughs> yeah. And yeah, like I said, I keep saying I remembered nothing about this book because, you know, I just blacked it out. I tend to black out things. Like I said, I can just pull that wig off and throw it in the other room and never think about it again. And I read this book oh, and was like, cool, you. let me never think about it again. <laughs> Uh, well, I'm sorry that we made us think about this book again, but <laughs> next time. Yes, next time we come to our favorite book in the series, which is Violet's book. Yeah, I am so pumped. We're going to be do. reading Violet's book next time. So next time we get to read I Kissed an Earl, which is number four in the Penny Royal Green series. This is Violet Redmond and Captain Asher Flint. Yummy, yummy, yummy. So finally, we have one last plea for you guys, which would be, again, those three things, the rate, the review, the subscribe, because that's how we get found. So... Thank you so much for listening to us. We're having so much fun here and we really want to hear from you guys again. Romancepod at gmail.com. Let us know your thoughts and join us next time as we read I Kissed an Earl by Julianne Long. Bye. Bye Bye-bye. Have fun. Rate, review, and subscribe. I mean, it's fine. It, it's a pretty picture. It just doesn't connect with the characters to me. Don't get me wrong, though, because I love me a yellow bell dress, and it's a pretty yellow bell dress. It is a pretty yellow bell dress, and it's got two author quotes on it of, like, praising it.
The first one is with Amanda Quick, and she's quoted as saying, a fantastic writer. And then there's another quote by Karen Hawkins, who graced our last cover as well. And she says, it's deliciously funny, witty, and sensual. Ooh. Karen Hawkins. I disagree. Yeah, I would disagree with that description <laughs> as well. <laughs> All right. Well, um, now that we've bashed Karen's opinions, shall we get into our own opinions? Yes. Sorry, Karen. I love your books. Just saying. 